Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast with me, Dr. Samantha Cotrera. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share my academic conference presentations with a wider audience. I also have a video series called Imagining a New We that's designed for K-12 teachers and helping them think about their practice and pedagogy in more meaningful, inclusive, and transformative ways. Just after the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, I recorded a video for that series asking how we would teach history after this. I didn't have any answers. I still don't. But in asking the question, I was able to connect to a wide variety of people in the history and heritage field about whether their ideas of history have changed because of this moment, how they think teaching history will shift after this moment, and how notions of community, collaboration, and creativity, the imagining a new we that I named the video series after, may be developed or curtailed during and after this time. All of these videos are available on YouTube. You can search for my name to find the channel. But the conversations have been so rich that I wanted to provide another way for people to access them. This podcast episode and the rest in the Pandemic Pedagogy series is an unedited audio version of one of those video conversations. As an unedited version, you may hear buffering or a prompt to re-ask a question or even the inclusion of a cat. But the content and quality of the conversation remains the same. In this conversation, originally posted May the 12th, 2020, I speak to Dr. Sarah Glassford. Dr. Glassford is a librarian, an archivist, and historian from the University of Windsor. She and I discuss how the lessons that she, um, that she learned through co-editing a book on women in World War II have led her to think about the ways that both joy, confusion, and uh, uh, the unknown of the future can all coexist at once. It was really great to be able to draw on these lessons of World War II, as well as her experience as a librarian and archivist. Enjoy. Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, You know, I've been saying about so many people that it's amazing all of the different experiences people bring to these conversations. And I, I think that you are definitely no exception. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Do you want to just do like a quick introduction of yourself before we get started? Sure. Um, So my name is Sarah Glassford. Uh, I have two hats that I wear, I guess, these days professionally. One is as a social historian, and I did my PhD at York University in history, Uh, graduated in 2007, and went on to be a history professor for about a decade um, in Ottawa and in Maritimes. Had a great time teaching, and then in 2017, went back to school and transitioned to a second career as an archivist. So I've worked for the Canadian Red Cross in an archival capacity. I've worked for the Provincial Archives of New Brunswick, and currently I'm the head of the Archives and Special Collections at Letty Library in the University of Windsor, um, but still also a researching and publishing Canadian historian. You see, like, see a woman of many hats, another renaissance woman. Um, you know, I, I have approached some people about doing this series and, and they said like, well, you know, maybe I'm not teaching history or I don't teach history formally. And for me, when I think of teaching history, I think of mobilizing the past. And that's why I was really interested in talking with you because I think that you'll never be able to separate yourself as a historian with yourself as a librarian and archivist. So you're still mobilizing the past in these ways. And 
I started these conversations by asking people if they have thought of history any differently after this or during this moment, because I have, like it, it is, it's kind of shaped some things. Um, do you have any perspectives? Has history, um, has history been shaped in different ways for you during this time, especially in your capacity, um, working in a library, working as an archivist, and, and still working during this time, even though you're not with your collections? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, that question sends me off in about half a dozen different mental directions. <laughs> Do it, all of them. <laughs> so I'm not sure if yeah, maybe very incoherent as answers go. Um, the first is, and it's just timing. Um, so I've been working for the past couple of years with uh, historian Amy Shaw from the University of Lethbridge. We've been co-editing a collection of essays about women and girls uh, of Canada and Newfoundland during the Second World War, which actually I have it right here. So here it is. Uh, it showed up on oh, my can doorstep. Can you put it higher so we can like see the whole oh, sure. Here? Sure, hang on a second. Well, isn't that a beautiful book? It is a beautiful book, and it showed up on my doorstep about two or three weeks into my isolation. So I was super excited to get it, and it sort of felt like a reconnection to the regular world. But then, of course, I was flipping through and, you know, kind of reacquainting myself with the content, and uh, then got talking with Amy, and we just thought there are so many interesting connections between the overarching themes that we developed or pulled out of, of that book, um, and women's experiences of the Second World War and what we're experiencing right now. And probably the overriding similarity that I would, would say I see is um, just the importance of community and the fact that you can be going through a really difficult time and yet also have these really wonderful experiences and sort of think of it as being both a terrible time and a special time at, at one in the same moment, that those contradictions actually can exist in your daily existence. Um, and that, and, and one of the things that we talk about in uh, the introduction and conclusion to the book is this difficulty that we seem to have um, as we look back on the Second World War with reconciling what scholars have found around all, just all the bad stuff about the war, that it didn't liberate women, that it was really, you know, kind of oppressive in some ways to some groups of people, that it was, you know, it's all these, these um, negative aspects that some of the gains that were made were rolled back as soon as the men came home from the war. But at the same time, there's this popular memory of like, you know, Rosie the Riveter, we can do it, and this sense of, of new opportunities and community and fun and romance and all the, and, and there's the sort of popular memory that's promulgated through the media all the time, and then what scholars have found, and they, they don't talk to each other. And one of the things that we found was, you know, if you look at actual memoirs and diaries and things, women are talking about both of those things at the same time, that they had both of those experiences. You know, they were not unaware that everything wasn't suddenly perfect from a gender relations standpoint, but they also were sometimes having a great time and sometimes having a terrible time. And it really depended on the community that you were part of or, or communities, I should say, you know, your church group or what profession you were in or your family ties or whether you had someone you knew who was overseas or not. All of those little kind of, um, overlapping and, and separate um, communities really influenced how you experienced the overall war years, um, you know, whether you were resilient or not, and whether it kind of crushed you or was the greatest time in your life or, you know, all these sorts of things. And um, so just the, the sort of contradictions and messiness of that and the importance of community uh, has really been brought home for me by experiencing the pandemic. Um, 
and uh, in particular for me, so I'm alone in my home, so <laughs> I'm really drawing on all of my communities through telecommunications, and it's been in some ways a really wonderful experience to have more contact with people in the different places that I've lived and different groups I'm part of than I would normally have. So it's, you know, it's trying at times, but it's also been kind of great in other ways. Uh, and I just feel like that personal experience really brings that element of the past to life. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's just been interesting. The other, the other thing that immediately jumped to mind uh, with your question was, can I say something actually before you go to this, the second part of your yeah. answer? Because there's like a yeah. million things I want to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number one. Yeah, go for it. Number, yeah. Number one, we will put the link to your book down below um, because we, we want people to, to get it. And I, I wish you would have told me about it before we started oh, talking sorry. because um, anyway. I need I, a do-over? <laughs> Um, maybe, maybe we could do do over. Well, actually, that's the second part of things because I have done a, a video for the series before the pandemic pedagogy about the difficulties of teaching about women and women's experiences in the K twelve history classroom because of the structure of the of the curriculum itself, and that one mm. of the ways that we can um, can do more of this teaching about women is to focus on things like care work and things about experiences. Mm -hmm. So when you said that book, I was like, oh, we are going to do another video, <laughs> <laughs> um, with you and the other editor about that book. I mean, we could even do like a round table with some of the authors too, to pull out e-learnings about women in World War II that challenges these traditional narratives that K-12 teachers are going to be able to bring into their class. So that is very exciting. Mm -hmm. That's going to be, be a great. thing yeah. that happens. <laughs> we should plan well, Feel free to cut that whole thing I just said and save it for something else. We can nope. <laughs> I have other things I think. <laughs> no, we're going to use it for this because now, because I'm saying this so that people will know to check back to the channel in the fall because because let's do something more for that. I think that's mm. such oh, an exciting great. Yeah. history to mobilize, especially for classroom mm. teachers that it's so easy to stick with the narratives that just that we know and to be introduced to other narratives are so important. So that is very exciting. <laughs> so that, that aside, I also really appreciate you bringing up the combination of both like hope and struggle during this time or like the loneliness and also the like awesome parts. I think of the play waiting for Grade, um, that is also a really great resource that people can bring into their classrooms about women on the home front and this, you know, about the about feeling both of these things at the same time. And I, I think that you highlighting that this as a, a moment in time that we can recognize this in our own selves, we can bring this into how we teach and learn history um, in stronger ways as well. Like, recognizing that we're feeling anxiety, recognizing that we're also mm -hmm. feeling hope. How do people in the past also experience those things? And do we see that in our historical narratives? So thank you for bringing that up. And also thank you for agreeing, even though you didn't agree yet, <laughs> to do another um, video about the book and the learnings from that book as well. So um, great. Okay, so sorry. Oh, awesome. What yeah, else were you? 
Yeah, um, just my other two are, are quite small little just kind of asides, but one is- It's not gonna lead to a whole other video series? <laughs> no, I don't think so, uh, hopefully not. Um, but one is because I spent a fair amount of time studying and, and especially teaching history of medicine. One of the, the teaching fallbacks for history of medicine is to focus on epidemics in the past. So there's, you know, you can do a whole weeks on cholera or smallpox or syphilis or you know, the black plague or whatever. And these little microcosms of what's going on in a society and what they do or don't know about germs or, you know, theories of the body and that kind of thing. And so you spend a lot of time talking about epidemics if you either study or teach um, uh, history of medicine. And so it has been both affirming and deeply disappointing in our society for me to see that this pattern that runs through every single one of those historical epidemics of scapegoating has been happening in small ways during this one. And you know, whether that's Donald Trump calling it the Chinese disease or the Chinese virus, or you know, comments by a um, member of our own conservative party about Dr. Theresa Tam that are vaguely racist, or you know, just there's just that desire that comes out again and again to pin this on somebody who's not us. You know, somebody else has broke into our little safe bubble and diseased us all, and isn't it terrible? And, and you know, in the past, often that gets taken to a violent and oppressive place. And we haven't seen that so far, but you know, it's if we fall into that pattern of scapegoating, I think it's not outside the realm of possibility that we could also see violence or, you know, different forms of oppression. So, so that's a pattern that has repeated itself and it's just, you know, it's disappointing to see that it continues to be a pattern, but also from a scholarly perspective, really interesting. Uh, and then the last one was one that actually, I think it was only maybe the second or third day that I was home from work or working from home, I guess, uh, that I had this just sort of light bulb moment of thinking, I bet this is what it was like when the First or the Second World War had been declared, but nothing had actually happened yet. Because I was aware of this sense of like, okay, my workplace has not shut down, but they've closed the building. We're all at home. Things are weird. You know, you're kind of watching the news obsessively but nothing has actually happened. Like, <laughs> it was just this weird little moment of unreality. Um, and, and that sense of waiting, I thought, I just, it, I suddenly had this insight into those, you know, early weeks of both wars, but especially the First World War, where you just, you know, you're like, this could get really bad, but it's not bad yet. It's actually kind of fun. And, you know, it's hard to explain to students why people would have thrown a parade when they declared war in 1914. But I felt like there was a little bit of that as people were getting on social media and, you know, like, whoa, I'm wearing my pajamas from home, you know, all this kind of stuff and, and baking the bread or whatever. And just that being in that little early bubble of, of waiting for something, but it's not there yet, was just a point of connection with the past that I found really fascinating. Well, it's funny because for me, I also felt that, but it was also like this sense of uh, responsibility to the dread, if that makes any sense. Okay. You know, like, um, you, you know, it's, it's weird, like, yes, social distancing, but it's also just not making eye contact with people when you go for a walk down the street because you're trying to, like, demonstrate your understanding that this is a moment that we should you know, and so to me, mm. like, I also thought of that, and I, I think of the, 
when I worked at the Archives of Ontario, they had this project where they were tweeting out parts of a diary from um, someone from the War of 1812. And of okay. course, like that wasn't a war that they, that, that unless it was happening literally in your backyard, you may right, yeah, yeah. it was happening, but it wasn't so present. And it also made me think mm -hmm. of wars like that, where you know something's happening, you need to show reverence, but it's only affecting you or it's affecting you so personally that you're not quite sure how to negotiate the social part of it. So yeah, I appreciate you saying how like drawing on this feeling as a way to make a link with the past. That's, um, yeah. that's really powerful actually. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, I think just to pick up on what you said, I think there is also a parallel between that distinction um, again, during the, the World Wars for Canada and the United States as well, where there's a home front that is very distinct from the battlefront. That's not true for a lot of people in parts of Europe, but it's that defines our experience, is that there's this separate experience where you're part of the war, but you're not in the war, you know, fighting it. And I think a lot of us feel that right now where we're doing our part by staying home, keeping others safe, but we're also aware that there are people who have to go out and go to work and are, you know, scars on their faces from the, the face masks and are, you know, dealing with patients and putting their lives on the line, um, doing that sort of, you know, frontline work, I guess. Um, and some people really find that hard, like they have that sense of impotence of, you know, well, I'm just at home, what can I do? And other people just settle right into it and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm doing what I can do and that's cool. And, you know, but just, just that there is that distinction in terms of how large groups of people are, are participating in this overarching experience. And a reminder that the public response is not a consistent response. You know, I, mm -hmm. when I was talking with um, oral historian Christina Llewellyn, I was, I recall this story when I was telling my grandmother, who was a, you know, a housewife in the 60s about, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, you know, how everyone was so scared about the Cold War. And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And like, they were not practicing duck and cover at home. They were like dancing with their friends all night. Um, yeah. And, and like for us to remember that we, that the public is this not this monolith and that uh, people in the past, just like people right now are dealing and dealing with things differently. And this is something that came up in my conversation um, uh, with uh, uh, Funke about um, if you're, if the people that are experiencing things like you are all like you, that there are no diversities to people's responses, you have to think a little bit differently about the media and the records and the things that that are uh, that you're surrounding yourself with that make sense of experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, this also leads to our next question about teaching history. In the future, do you think the ways that we will teach history or approach history as a, as a researcher um, look different because we may have had more of these connections to different elements about what the past might have looked like? Mm -hmm. um. I guess I have a few answers to that with my different hats on. Um, if I was still classroom teaching, I think I would, I would be working in those little personal connections and parallels between, you know, whether I was teaching wartime history or, or history of health or something, um, but drawing on the fact that for quite a number of years to come, my students will have been old enough to remember 
their experience of the pandemic and sort of say, you know, do you remember uh, X or Y or when it first started and you were home from school or you were whatever, you know, how did that feel? And, um, you know, using those, those personal points of connection, which is something that I, I like to do when possible anyway. But now that there is, to some extent, this common experience, I think it would be a, a really powerful tool um, because so often students don't have the same uh, reference points when they come to your classroom. So this is one where everyone will remember that it happened and, and you know, might have their own experiences to draw on. So I think that would be, uh, would be interesting, but of course I'm not classroom teaching anymore, so that's a missed opportunity. <laughs> um, no, but again, that's why this series is so great, because that is an important thing that people can bring into their classrooms, thanks to your idea, so thank you. Well, feel free to steal it, anyone. Um, so yeah, as an archivist, I think, um, I don't know that this will change necessarily the shape of my work or my colleagues' work, um, you know, because we do the things that we do are, are fairly rooted in the kinds of materials that we have and just trying to preserve and, and provide access for them. That's going to look very similar. Um, but I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that there are so many initiatives going on right around the world and even in my own, my own archives um, to actively collect and archive and, and have people contribute records or, or images or whatever um, documenting their experiences of this pandemic. So um, there will be a lot more material uh, in future for researchers or for teachers to draw on in the archives about this pandemic than there is about, say, the Spanish flu in 1918-19. You know, it's, it's actually really hard to find the Spanish flu in the archives, except from a sort of government response point of view. Um, because it just, I don't know, it, I think it was just so much more severe. People were just dealing with it and they weren't, they weren't thinking, you know, hey, can I create a blog series to record this? Like they just thought differently about the thing that they were going through. But, you know, for whatever reason now, I think a lot of people um, have a much more, I don't know, documenting mindset. Maybe it's just that everyone's used to taking videos of their dinner, you know, let alone bigger things. Um, you know, that they're, they're thinking, hey, I'm having this interesting experience, I'm going to somehow record it, uh, and that there are archives and libraries and, and other projects that are attempting to gather some of those things in. So, uh, so there will be quite a lot of material in the future, um, and hopefully capturing a real diverse swath of voices and experiences in different places and, and uh, types of people and that sort of thing. So I think that'll, that'll be good as well. Um, and then the other, the other thing I thought of, which is um, a little bit more with my working in a library hat is that um, my colleagues who are liaison librarians, so who are kind of assigned to a particular department or faculty at the university and work closely with them in terms of applying resources or um, teaching their students uh, information skills, a lot of them are working more closely with their uh, faculty members than they normally do. Not that they don't try to normally, but there's a um, a turning to the library, to the librarians by faculty members as they scramble to try to, you know, they're, they're being forced to become online pedagogues and, and a lot of them are just like, well, how do I do what I already do well when I don't have the resources, you know, the things that I use are not digital things I can easily translate into this new environment. So there's been a lot of um, discussion going on between librarians and, and faculty members in terms of, well, what resources exist and how can we help you either access them or, or you know, work, work what you want to do around what's available to support it. Um, so there's a lot more collaboration, I think, happening there. And, and there's certainly room for more 
um, going forward because we don't know how long this will all last. Um, and I don't know that that will last beyond the pandemic. Uh, faculty members are very independent and, you know, as they should be, that's fine. But um, it's, it's heartening as somebody in the library context to see that um, in a lot of cases, uh, faculty members are information professionals can bring to their teaching or to, to the support of their teaching. You know, it's not sort of the last minute like, oh, I better make sure the library has a copy of, you know, whatever I want to use. It's, okay, I know the landscape has changed. What can you offer and how can we make this work um, from a much earlier stage in, in course preparation? So that's interesting to me as well to observe. With my other hat on, um, working in higher education as well, I also know, and I'm just going to use the word struggles, although you did not say that, mm -hmm. of um, librarians to work more collaboratively with faculty that may not have understood that collaboration as the model for working with, mm -hmm. uh, working with librarians in a in a teaching capacity. And I think it's quite interesting that you bring that up now because I do think that this could be a moment where there can be greater understanding that teaching does not have to be a solitary activity. It can be and in many ways is enriched by a collaboration between different professionals, different people with different points of view in order to bring in greater resources and opportunities for teaching and learning um, in the classroom. And so it's interesting to hear because I am friends with a few people who are teacher librarians in K-12 settings and they are they are feeling a lot of stress right now in, in that because again, it's a different model of teachers and librarians working together. But because of my experience knowing that the, this is a, is a struggle that some librarians feel, um, I am kind of hardened by the idea that maybe this can lead to greater collaboration and, and collabor collaborative mm -hmm. teaching teams um, rather than thinking of it as an individual task because, yeah. because teaching is changing and so therefore um, the, the resources that we need in order to teach will also change um, because we need to think differently about uh, how and in what ways we're delivering content and how to make it the best content we can be, it, it can be, right? Mm -hmm. So this leads me to my third question, although I never imagined the notion of imagining a new we to be about faculty and uh, university librarians, but be that as it may, uh, it's a good segue. Um, this video series uh, came from, like the larger video series, not just the pandemic pedagogy part, came from these larger questions of how can we create greater circles of inclusion in the ways that we teach and learn Canadian history narratives. And this isn't just about bringing in, ensuring that we have multicultural narratives, it's ensuring that uh, different cultures and not just ethnic or, or racial cultures, but many different cultures uh, are able to shift and change what we understand as as community. So do you have any thoughts about this notion of a we or this this notion of an imagining a notion of collaboration and creativity that might come during or after this moment? Yeah, um, this probably not surprisingly given what you've said in your sort of segue is this was the question that I have struggled the most to come up with an answer for um, so I'm not sure I have anything really <laughs> particularly valuable to offer 
It's all uh, valuable, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess um, I, on, a, on a personal level, I've been very heartened, or, or I guess on a personal level, but as a person who has studied and attempted to teach a very inclusive version of Canadian history. Um, I am heartened by what I see going on in all the forms of media that we currently have and just conversations with people I know, um, that there seems, or I guess, the degree to which people seem to recognize the differential impact of this pandemic. That, and the best way of phrasing it that I've come across that somebody said was, we are not all in the same boat. You hear people saying that, we're all in the same boat. We're not actually all in the same boat, but we are definitely in the same storm. And to me, if you sort of take that metaphor, is that those of us in very secure lifeboats need to be working extra hard to reach out to the ones clinging to driftwood, you know, or to share our resources with a lifeboat that doesn't have any fresh water, you know, whatever. You can take the metaphor wherever you want. But um, just this idea that, that I do see people recognizing that there are different degrees of impact. You know, is this an inconvenience to you? Is it a mental health struggle? And neither of those things is negligible, but those are different experiences and they have a different long-term impact than someone who has lost their job or, you know, whose, whose special needs kid is now not getting the support that they need, you know, in a classroom or, or institutional setting, you know, or, or people who are actually, you know, losing loved ones whose own lives are at risk or their children's lives are at risk because of some kind of pre-existing condition. Um, you know, the people who are going out and doing, doing work um, in more dangerous settings or, or doing healthcare work, um, there does seem to be a real recognition that, that we're not in the same boat, even if people are still saying we're all in the same boat. Um, and I, I think that paves the way for how people will record their experiences, talk about their experiences, how those things will find their way into archives, and therefore the eventual output that we will get in the, in the form of, you know, curriculum, lesson plans, um, writing about this, exhibits, you know, in, in decades to come. I hope that that recognition, recognition will filter through all the way through that chain um, to come. Well, one of the, that, that's a great metaphor, and I have a tendency to mix metaphors, so I appreciate you were able to, like, keep the same <laughs> one. It was great. <laughs> um, what, what, one of the things I heard from that answer was that we need to, if we are doing some recording, we need to be aware of the ways that our lifeboat looks different than others. Um, that mm -hmm. that that notion of inequity can be part sorry there was a thing that our notion of inequity can be part of the ways that we are recording as a way to ensure the justice of of mm -hmm. recognizing the inequity that that is happening right now because like you, I uh, like I'm a single woman that working from home. I have a home office. I don't have uh, childcare needs. I don't have elder care needs. I do have a secure job. My experience is very different than my neighbor down the hall, for example, that has that has children. And I think that you know I'm seeing things. And I know that you are too about things like women academics are not submitting um, academic journal articles at the same rate that they have in the past. And parents, uh, especially mothers, are just at capacity for negotiating this. And what does that look like? And mm. 
I, what I hear from what you're saying is the importance of if we are going to use this moment to imagine a new we, that we have to ensure that we are recognizing the inequity of a we and to strive for greater justice in recognizing and advocating for greater equity in the different lifeboats that we could be in. Because I, I know you talked about driftwood too, but anyway. <laughs> Um, I think that's really, I think it's really powerful because the people that are recording are the people uh, of this moment or the people that have time and privilege to do so, right? Like I'm able to have these conversations because I, I don't have children that I'm watching. I do have a home office. I have a laptop with a, a, a webcam. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting element for us to think about in the future too, about the records that will be available to us, just like the records that have been available to us in the past about past events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's that's a good direction in which you've taken my answer. I like that. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm reminded of a, of a conversation that I had um, with a friend of mine who, who did his PhD in the same program as me, um, who has ended up working uh, completely outside of academic or even history work, uh, and is one of those frontline workers in a managerial capacity. So we we're having a conversation and because I knew what line of work he was in, I just wanted to kind of check in and see if he was okay. And, and he said, Sarah, this is, you know, it, it drives him crazy right now because he has that sort of critical lens and, and analytical, you know, stuff going on in his historian brain that, that so much of what's in social media or, or in the mainstream media or whatever um, is about, you know, like, what are you baking during the pandemic? Or, you know, like, uh, you know, use this as your Marie Kondo moment and fit out your house. <laughs> it's like, that is such a like bourgeois experience of this pandemic and bears absolutely no relation to what he's doing in his job or his coworkers and, and the service that they're trying to provide or even just their daily experience across the counter interacting with the public and what those interactions look like. And, and yeah, so I was just, I was, really thrilled to have that he's sort of that one person that I know who's having a completely different experience than me of this ac uh, uh, pandemic and I just felt like it kind of blew my my thoughts or, or my bubble of thoughts around what this looked like out of the water and, and I suddenly was like oh yeah I need to be a little more <laughs> clued into what's going on outside of of my social circle um if I really want to understand what this looks like and, and, and be a good archivist and know, you know, what kind of experiences I want to collect and, and bring into my archives uh, after this. So, yeah. Um, there is something I want to say to that, but uh, I feel like I'm going to be interrupted in two minutes by the buzzer. So yeah. when I am interrupted, I'm going to do that and I'll have to repeat my answer, but just so you know, that's what's going to happen. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about the inequities in education, and I know that a lot of people right now are engaging with this series that are teaching, for example, um, history at a university level because those classes are still in play. And while this series is designed generally for a K-12 audience, I, I recognize that like there are so many pressures right now on teachers to think about doing anything right now, especially if they're parents, that they might not be able to engage in these big ideas. And so that's why I think it's also really important for us to remember that this moment isn't a moment that's going to be ended, but that 
that there can be echoes of these conversations. So that this video might, you know, we're filming this in May, this video might be watched next January or might be listened to on a podcast while somebody is traveling in a year from now, because all of these elements that we are learning, that we are unearthing can, can help us in the future. And um, I just want to thank you again for participating in that in this conversation. I think it's been so valuable, all your, your different hats. And I am so thrilled that in the future that we'll get to talk about your World War II book. But I, I really take your point about how important it is to remember both things can be happening. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, in terms of equity, but also in terms of emotion. So thank you so much for participating. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> um, uh, so we'll be in touch, but we'll just say goodbye for now. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Pandemic Pedagogy series of the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. My first book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, will be available in the latter half of 2020. Order on Amazon or through your local bookseller today.